Good morning. It's good to see you. I know some of our little ones are heading to junior church at this time, and so as they are doing that, I want to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 44. We began the Gospel of Matthew in December of 2012, and we are almost finished. I'm looking forward to a fall series that we are going to be doing called Life Together. It's a series that we are going to look at that deals with all, not all, but some of the one another passages found in the scripture that really has a lot of instruction for us as a church. So that will begin in September. Uh, but we are coming closely to uh, wrapping Matthew chapter 28 up, or Matthew's gospel up in chapter 28. We'll actually spend a few weeks in the section of the Great Commission as we look forward to that in the coming weeks. Today, we will be looking at verses 27 through 40, uh, excuse me, through 56 of chapter 27. Uh, as we prepare to do that, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we, we realize that apart from you, we are nothing and we could do nothing. And so, Lord, as we open your word we are asking in faith for you to help us, convict us, change us, encourage. Lord, do whatever it is that is needed in our lives so that we would not only be saved, but that we would reflect the image of Christ all the more. So Lord, would you come now and give us teachable hearts and minds so that we could understand your word and rightly apply your word for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. World history is filled with many turning points. You could just think about all of the nations and kingdoms that have come and gone throughout the history of the world, for example. And world history is filled with with events that had lasting impact, maybe a significant war or some kind of significant uh, event that took place that, that had some lasting impact in the development of nations and culture. Think about a couple of examples. The Black Plague in the mid-1300s in Europe killed upwards to a quarter to two-thirds of Europe's population. It took almost 150 years to recover from that terrible event. And it's interesting that due to all of the deaths, there was a sudden shortage of cheap labor, which provided then an incentive for landlords to compete for peasants with wages and freedoms, ultimately sowing the seeds for capitalism. Significant event that changed circumstances. 1436, the printing press was established, created, invented, leading to the spread of knowledge to the masses. Some of you haven't figured that out yet. You need to learn to read. Later in the 1400s, 1500s, exploration led to the finding of the new world, totally changing the, the map, if you will. 1500s, the Protestant Reformation took place, 
challenging the church in theological principles, but, but not only in theological principles. It was the Protestant Reformation that ultimately challenged even politics of the day and, and led to changes in the development of politics that we see the fruits of even today in our own culture. We could, we could isolate many of such turning points in, in the development of, of history. We could point to all kinds of circumstances. We could go to virtually every major war that has taken place and see how that event and that war, short or long, has had a lasting impact in our world. But folks, there is one event unlike any other. There is one event, unlike any other event the world has ever experienced, that would have the most reaching and lasting impact ever. And it is the very event that are in the verses before us today. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This event has had the most impact ever, before, now, or will ever be. It has changed the landscape of, of countless lives. It is the life and ministry of Jesus that, that, that really the world history hinges on. All of, in fact, even in the, in the Old Testament, all that had been established in the Old Testament was pointing forward to this day when the Messiah would come and, and even specifically when he would die for the sins of his people. All before this had been leading up. In fact, your, your Bible, you just hold that page right there where the crucifixion is. Everything before it was pointing to this moment. And everything after it is looking back to this moment. This moment, Matthew chapter 27 and other gospel accounts that deal with this same event, is the pivotal moment of humanity, period. what's considered the climax of the scriptures. Scholar Stephen Neal said it this way, in the Christian theology of history, the death of Christ is the central point of history. Here, all the roads of the past converge, hence all the roads of the future diverge. So I have my work cut out for me today dealing with the most pivotal events in all of human history. So what do we make of it? As we consider this great climax to, to not just biblical, but certainly human history, there, what do we make of this event as we consider the, the crucifixion of the Savior? The sufferings that Christ endured, what, what is this telling us? What is it that that these sufferings that he endured, how does that inform us and how does that change us? Well, we know that last week, we, the last few weeks, we've been building up to this moment. Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested. He had, he had endured the, the, the trials, the very unjust trials that, that he was placed into, leading to this moment that we come to today. 
So as we consider this climax, as we consider the sufferings in which Christ endured, there are several realities that emerge from this that that tell us something that will be transformative for our lives. And I want to walk through those things today. I want to walk through those observations, those realities that, that the cross brings into your life, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're here and you're not a Christian today, this is pivotal. This is the pivotal moment of all of history. And it will impact you one way or the other. So let's look at these realities that emerge from the sufferings of Christ. Specifically in his crucifixion, but even even beyond that. Let's walk through them together. I want us to to look at this in, in really three observations. First of all, I want us to look at the extent of Christ's sufferings. Then we're going to look at the the provision of his sufferings, and the response to his sufferings. We're going to walk through those three things together, unpack them, look at how this then is calling us to that third point, the response. Let's begin with the extent of his sufferings in verses 27 through 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You know, the different gospel writers, when they explain this scene of crucifixion, they do so from different angles. For example, in Luke's account, you really have a description of the crucifixion that that is really focused upon Uh, the crucifixion really is a place of worship where forgiveness is being extended. John's account tends to stress the sovereign control that Jesus had of the situation. But both Mark and Matthew expose the horror and terrible reality of crucifixion. I think for most people today, the appalling nature of how Jesus was treated and how he died is is lost. 
We really don't get a sense. We, we so dominated our, our culture with crosses that we really lose the sense of, of, of the, the awful nature that crucifixion really, really was. I want to point out several things here concerning the suffering that Christ endured. Number one, Christ suffered physically. Jesus suffered physical pain that was absolutely excruciating. It begins, not when he was nailed to the cross, but it really begins back in chapter 26, verse 67, where we're told they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. It continued with his scourging. A scourging was, was a was a beating with a multi-lashed whip containing pieces of bone and metal. And then he was forced to bear the weight of his own cross as he carried it to the place of crucifixion, certainly Simon being asked to help him. And there were yet no nails pounded through his fists or hands at this point. That would soon come as he was certainly nailed to the cross. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar describes crucifixion like this. He says, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds. All intensified just up to the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every moment painful. Dr. Truman Davis goes further in describing the crucifixion where he says, As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. Carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream. Tortured lungs make a frantic effort to gasp in small gasps of air. Ultimately, one died from crucifixion through suffocation. Crucifixion was a terrifying thing. It was an appalling event. But the pain associated with it was not quick execution. It was a lingering and agonizing experience. Again, I don't think that we realize the the awful reality that crucifixion really was. Even the mention of a cross today seems very little in our minds. We talk about it often. The word cross for us is a comfortable and even pleasant word. But for the word to even be uttered in this day, in this time, would have been very jarring for the people to hear. It was a Roman punishment even understood by the Romans themselves to be so cruel. They wouldn't write about it. They wouldn't even speak it. Certainly, Roman citizens were not to be crucified. It was only reserved for the pagans. It was disgusting and horrific. Christ suffered physically in this way. But not only that, he suffered humiliation In addition to the horrific pain associated with crucifixion, there was the humiliation. He continued to be mocked by the Jews, by the Roman soldiers, and even the robbers. 
They spat upon him. They stripped him of his clothing. They put a scarlet robe on him, crown of thorns on his hand, and a reed for his scepter. They mocked him and laughed at him, playing him as a fool. Then there was the crucifixion where he was left to hang, exposed for all to watch. But we know that his humiliation was part of the plan. Indeed, his incarnation involved the Son of God humbling himself to come and live a life among us. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2 verse 7. He, speaking of Christ, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's that's huge, by the way. Think about that statement. Made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the holy, eternal Son of God. Becoming a man. And we're told, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And Paul wants to qualify this death. It's not just any death, even death on a cross. There's the jar. Jarring word. Isaiah said of him in chapter 52, verse 14, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Christ not only suffered physically, he suffered humiliation. He humbled himself and he was humiliated. And you know, we might could relate to those two in some way, though not to the extent that he endured it. We know what it's like to suffer physical pain, though not to the extent of being crucified. We know what it's like to be humiliated, though not to the extent that Christ was humiliated. But this third way that he suffered, I'm not sure that any of us have any any way of associating with, because third, he suffered abandonment. Down in verse 46, if you look at the section after where I read, it says, Now from the sixth hour, verse 45, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct quote from Psalm 22. A psalm that David penned in a moment of terrible agony and abandonment is what he felt. Think about this. Jesus had been abandoned by his government. He had been abandoned by his disciples. John was kind of hanging around, but most of his disciples were gone at this point. He was forsaken by his own Jewish people. And now as he hung on the cross, he is experiencing the what it, what it means to be fully forsaken by God. Jesus was forsaken by his Father at this moment. And it had to be that way. You say, well, why did it have to be that way? Friends, as Jesus hung on the cross... You have to remember that he was taking the full 
penalty for sin. As Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus was taking upon himself God's judicial stroke of judgment against sin. And at this moment, God's full wrath against sin is being poured out upon Jesus. And for that to be fully executed, God the Father had for this moment to turn his back upon his Son so that the full anger and wrath against sin could be given upon him as he died in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake... He made him to be sin. I think we read past that too quickly. Do you hear what he says? He made him to be sin. Jesus at that moment became sin, being punished. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse. For us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. As Jesus hung upon the cross, he is becoming sin and he is becoming the curse so that the judgment could rest upon him and not upon us. Totally abandoned by God at this moment. Friend, I wonder how you think of that. Think of that. Christians, Christ experienced such suffering, physically, humiliation, abandonment, for you and your sin, for that selfishness that's in your heart, for the pride that is present, for the greed and the lust. For all of those things that, that, that are manifestations of our sinful nature. Christ took upon himself on the tree. He became a curse. He became sin. So that in him you might be set free. He encountered the piercing pain of crucifixion for our sin. He was humiliated for the sake of our pride. He was abandoned because ultimately we had abandoned God and deserved his full judgment and penalty. Sure, it was a temporary abandonment, but he was abandoned. He was forsaken at this moment so that the full wrath and judgment against sin could be endured. That's the extent in which he suffered. Which leads me right into the next point of the provisions of Christ's suffering. What does he accomplish well, Jesus suffered and endured all that he did for a reason, right? He, he did this for us, for our sin. Let's pick up in verse 45. Again, actually verse 47. After he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, well, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook 
and rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. point out several things that are provided through Christ's death upon the cross from this text. We could list many. I'm going to give you a couple or three. One of the things that we receive, one of the things that Christ provides for you, for me at the cross, is a full pardon of our guilt. You need to get this. You and I were guilty, 100% guilty. The cross is not God just sort of looking beyond our guilt, sweeping it under the rug. The cross is the manifestation of God's full justice against us. He's punishing our sin through the substitution of his own son. It's that glorious picture of God's perfect justice and his absolute mercy coming together at one moment at the cross where he so loved us that he's willing to pour out his just judgment and justice upon his son instead of us. And we receive full pardon. He re- reconciles us, he redeems us, he brings us to himself because of our sin. When Jesus died, he does not die as a guilty man. But rather, he takes upon himself our guilt. And the Gospels go out of their way to highlight the innocence of Christ, and yet he was killed for our sake. Several passages to consider. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Romans 4.25, was delivered for our trespasses, raised for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. But not only that, he, he gives us full access to God's presence. There are several miraculous events to, that took place at the moment of Jesus' death. It's really a, a, an amazing scene. Several things that take place here, we're told in verse 51, an earthquake happened. And right on the heels of that, uh, something that, that took place in the temple, we read about in verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was a very large and thick curtain veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the sanctuary, where the the symbolic presence of God was said to have dwelled. So this curtain was, in essence, keeping the presence of God, people from the presence of God. So so it was sort of that that division that that we can't go in there and, and, and live because of our sin. This is holiness, and we're not holy. We we can't dwell with with what is holy. And so this veil kept us separated from God. And only on the Day of Atonement would the high priest was allowed to go in, pass through this veil, to sprinkle blood on the altar for the sins of the people. Once a year. And at the moment of Christ's death, this veil that had separated the people's presence from God's presence was ripped into, torn into from top to bottom. 
And God was saying through this sacrifice that this sacrifice that has been rendered it, it, unto him, it, it rendered the veil unnecessary. There was no longer this need for separation. God was saying that the sacrifice of his son was now sufficient to allow people into his presence. Hebrews 4.16 says, Then let us come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a loud statement that access to God is now available through Christ. Whereas before there was this separation, there was, there was, you, you couldn't have access to God directly. But now you and I have access to God in His presence fully through the finished work of His Son. He gives us full access to His presence. But then a third reality is that we see that we have full victory over death. Another strange event that took place was found in verse 52. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is kind of this is crazy, right? This is what happened. Earthquake, the temple veil was torn in two, and, and some of the dead were raised. And began walking around and appearing to people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing your cousin? Or your, we're not told exactly who these people were. It could have been people long, long ago. All of a sudden raised to life. It's a mysterious account, but it's a solid reminder that death does not have the final word. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that you and I can ultimately be raised. Death has been dealt a death blow at the cross and ultimately through the resurrection. We have full pardon of our guilt we have full access to God's presence, and we have full victory over death through Christ. That's what was provided at the cross. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, friend, is that not what you want? The Bible makes clear that left to yourself, you remain under the curse. You will be judged for your sin. The provision that Christ provides here is the only way that God has made for you to be reconciled to Him. It's available to you. If you'd simply trust in this finished work of Christ, if you would believe in Him, if you would embrace Him and, and place your hope in Him, you can be rescued. You can be redeemed. Your sins can be forgiven right now. You don't have to Work them off. You will never work your sins off. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. Acknowledge them for what they are and trust in that. Christians, does this not give you reason to live a life of joyful obedience? 
What is your motivation for living the Christian life? What is your motivation for wanting to put off the old man and put on the new? What is it that stirs your heart every moment of every day? And if it does not begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it does not begin with what Christ has done for you, and that your response to that is an overflow of gratitude, I'm afraid you've, you've misunderstood what has taken place. So even your obedience, your desire to come to church and gather with the saints on Sunday, why is that? Because that's what I'm supposed to do? It's because what Christians do? It sh- should be that, but not stated that way ultimately it's a reflection of your gratitude for what Christ has done for you your sins have been forgiven praise God for that you've been given a righteousness that's not your own so that when God looks at you sinners me a sinner he doesn't see sinner he sees reconciled saint forgiven cleansed clothed in righteousness he sees perfection because of his son Does that not engage your heart to want to love Christ with every ounce of your being? Doesn't it become easier then to say no to temptation? No to sin? When you begin to realize the full depths of Christ's love for you? Doesn't it begin to become more Natural and easier to say yes to righteousness, to forbear with others, to love others who are unlovable. This is what Christ did for you. You gave him no reason to love you, and yet he was sacrificed on the cross for you. He's provided this for us. Which should lead us to a response, number three, the response to Christ's sufferings. Matthew, Matthew couldn't make it any clearer how Jesus' death brings various responses. And there are two here. Some mock and some believe. Some mock him and some believe him. Looking back through the, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, we have people from all walks of life mocking Jesus. The Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, even the two thieves. And this is how the world often looks at the cross. It's a mockery. It's hilarious to them. It's foolishness. Friend, don't let that be your response. What seems foolish to the majority is the very event that provides everlasting hope for sinners. But some believe. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. You can debate and discuss whether or not this is true saving faith. Some believe it is, some believe it isn't. There's certainly an element of belief here. This is a Roman soldier 
a pagan, confessing this indeed was the Son of God. And then you have the women in verses 55 and 56. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph the mother, the sons of Zebedee. These women were there. It's interesting. These women were there, but the vast majority of the disciples were nowhere to be found. Missing from this picture are those who were closest to Jesus, at least for now. You have some who mock him and some who believe in him. Friend, what is your response? Several things that we need to take away from this text. There are many, many things, but let me give you several. When you step back and you consider all that, that took place here, the, the extent of Christ's sufferings, what he provided for us through his sufferings, what he endured for our sake so that we could have forgiveness and hope and life and how we should respond to that. What, what are some other responses that we should, should feel, especially for those of us who believe? If, if you don't believe, your response should be belief. By God's grace, you should cry out for him to help you to believe and to trust in this. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you, your response is believe in this. Let your life be transformed by this. For those of you who have already believed, what should this lead you then to do as a Christian? Well, first of all, we should be disturbed. You say, well, what do you mean, disturbed? Disturbed at the absolute horror of sin. I'm not convinced that we take our sin as seriously as we ought. I'm not convinced of that because I don't do that in my own life. Not because I have little cameras watching you. This should disturb us that Christ endured all that he did for your sin. Your sin, your rebellion against God, your selfishness, your pride, your greed, your lust, your anger, your, all of these things that come out of a sinful heart. He did this for you. It should disturb you. It should disturb us as Christians that when we sin, that we are presuming upon the cross even. The horrific death that Jesus endured, he endured for our disobedience and our sin. That should lead us to be disgusted with sin and do everything by God's grace now to fight against it. If your response is, well, Jesus died, I don't have to worry about it, I can just sin all I want. He took care of it. You're fooled. He did take care of your guilt. He did take care of your punishment so that you could be transformed and live a life of righteousness that's pleasing to him should disturb you. I love what the great Puritan Thomas Watson said. He said this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Friend, if your heart is having a hard time loving Christ, it may be that sin has not become as disturbing as it should be in your life. Number two, 
we should be humbled. We should be humbled to think that the one who is perfect in every way, the eternal Son of God, the one who is absolutely holy and absolutely good, perfect and righteous, humbled himself to die for your sin. That should humble you. And number three, we should be thankful. Thankful for God's grace. Friend, your life should be a life of thanksgiving. You should live every day in a spirit of deep gratitude that you have been washed. That if you have trusted in Christ, you will not perish. There's coming a day of judgment. And the truth of the matter is, is that Christ's judgment that he took upon himself will either speak on your behalf on that day or you will have to face the judgment on your own. It's far safer and far better with Christ. Friends, we should live every day with that sense of gratitude that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are no longer condemned. Even though you are guilty, Christ took upon himself your guilt and condemnation. We should be disturbed, we should be humbled, we should be thankful. This, friends, is the greatest turning point of human history. The question for you is has it been a turning point for you in your life? It will still remain the greatest turning point whether or not you respond appropriately in faith or not. This is it. You'll have no no other event that outweighs this one because of what was accomplished. In one moment in human history, the sins of the world were placed upon the shoulders of the Savior so that the nations could be rescued. So that you can be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that were it not for this sacrifice that Christ endured, there would be no hope for us. We acknowledge that it was our sin that was in view, it was our sin that was judged at the cross. It was not Christ. He became sin. He became the curse so that we could be set free and so that we could be rescued, so that we could be forgiven. And Lord, we rejoice in that were it not for this event, Lord, we would be without hope. We would be trying to earn our way but this is such a loud and glorious statement that the way has been paid in full. The price for our redemption has been paid in full so that we can have life, so we can have joy, that we can have peace with you. No longer do our sins condemn us if we're in Christ. It's his righteousness that clothes us. It's his death that cleanses us. 
Father, if there's anyone here today that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they hear this truth today, they hear what Christ endured and they're drawn to that, Lord, right now, would you place that willingness in their hearts to cry out in faith so that they can be rescued, so that their sins can be forgiven, so that they can have hope. Father, you are God who saves. Lord, you sent your Son to die for this very reason, so that sinners could be reconciled to you. It's our prayer today that if there are any here that are unreconciled, that you would bring reconciliation to bear. Father, those of us who have experienced that glorious truth of forgiveness, those who have been reconciled already, I pray that this would not, this event of the cross would not be something that we simply place in our past. This good news of Jesus dying for sinners is not just for the unconverted. It is for those who are saved so that our lives could be lived out in humility and gratitude every single day. It should be the driving, compelling motive of our souls because of what we've received so that we would live out our lives to the praise of your glory. Maybe there are some here today that have presumed upon this cross, taken it for granted. They've not been disturbed over their sins like they ought to be. God, would you bring humility there would you help us to see that we apart from the cross would be condemned God you know our hearts and lives you know how we need to respond today by your grace would you help us to do so in a way that pleases you we pray this in Christ's name amen